The House committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol has begun a series of public hearings. The third of those hearings is scheduled to take place tomorrow, June 16. In the sessions so far, the committee has showcased previously unreleased footage of the January 6 attack and testimony from White House officials. What to make of this investigation? What are some important takeaways so far? And what do these hearings tell us about our culture? Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're taking a close look at the philosophic meaning of the January 6 attack, the hearings, and the reactions to both. I'm Ilan Jurno. With me today is Ankar Gatte. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Ilan. I thought it'd be useful to start by just taking a moment to reset the context. So we did a, a two and a half hour plus podcast about January 6th, just around the time it, after it happened. And I thought we should just set the context for people who did, haven't had a chance to watch that and give them a sense of how we viewed it at the time. So I want to turn to you. In the, in the time since the attack, people have come back and said, this was a hoax. It was sort of a blown. It was a political protest that got out of hand. How significant do you think it was culturally, politically, philosophically? What we talked about in the podcast, and I went back and watched the whole thing to refresh my memory about, I can remember some of it, but not everything that we said. We talked that about it as the way to classify it is as a terrorist attack. It's domestic terrorism, but it's still terrorism. It's the use of violence to achieve political goals. I don't think it's right to think of it as a coup or an insurrection in the sense that these were individuals who are going to seize the power of the federal government and going to put themselves now we're in charge of the federal government. That's not the right way to think about it. But what they were trying to achieve is a political goal by using violence. They were trying to terrify the representatives in Congress to change the vote. I mean, it was, a lot was directed towards Mike Pence, and that was Trump too. If he does the right thing, if he has the courage to do the right thing, this is part of what Trump was telling his supporters. And the to, to see this attack on the Capitol and the breach of the Capitol as an attempt to, to intimidate and terrorize Mike Pence, but not only Mike Pence, to change what they what their vote or their actions as government representatives and here in the most important institution in the government the congress the body that make passes makes and passes laws so i think that is the right way to think of what january 6th was it was a domestic terrorism and directed at one of the most important government institutions on an a very important issue, which is the peaceful transition of power, the election of a president, and him coming into office and his predecessor leaving office. So it, it was. It's a very significant. It certainly warrants investigation into what happened and how to prevent any such thing in the future. Yeah, one other point I would add to your comments is that. This is coming on the heels of a year, 2020, where the United States saw a lot of rioting and significant uh, unrest. So if you think about Portland or Seattle, where there were zones where 
the police just withdrew. So there was, there was really no law enforcement in certain places. And we saw cities burn. Now, this is not the same people carrying out these attacks, but one of the things that 2020, uh, one of the watershed uh, outcomes of 2020 and all of that sort of street violence was that it made this kind of behavior, this political violence, it, it, it took a step towards normalizing that as something that just people come to expect, oh, this side is doing it in Portland and Seattle, and this is what happens in these cities. Oh, okay, well, what's the, what's the big deal about doing it at the, at the capital? So there's, there's a sense in which it sort of numbs people to the significance of it, and that this is, is a significant violation of the rule of law. I mean, that's an understatement, and we'll talk more about that, but I think that's, that's if there's any kind of legacy from January 6th, it's, it's pushing us more towards that contempt for the rule of law than we were ever in that position, I think, in recent years. Yeah, contempt so, for it and the, and the substitution of force for law and then like explicit substitution of force. The fact that we can intimidate you is what should determine what happens. So, I, I'm, I agree with you. I think it's both appropriate and necessary to investigate the January 6th attack. And, but I, so having said that, I still have, I had a strange reaction to, to the first two hearings. I watched, I watched them both. I heard the first one on the radio initially, but I caught up watching them both. A couple of things struck me, and I, I just want to put this on the table, that there was something, so as sympathetic as I am with the goal of investigating this and bringing to light what actually happened and, and bringing people to justice, this was very highly produced. There was, I think that this, people complained that the, the committee brought in an expert of a television producer who helped them manage this. It's very choreographed, highly scripted. And another way to look at that is it's, it's very effective communication. So the first one was done on prime time. So that, I thought was, I mean, I can, I can live with some of that, but, but there's definitely aspects of this that I think are either valid or plausible criticisms of the hearing. So let's talk about that. So what, what do you think are some of those things to be concerned about with the hearings? Yeah, I too had a reaction to how produced this is. And is this compatible with a uh, investigation that's trying to just lay out the facts this is what we've learned, this is how it happened, why it happened, and then having some future orientation of that this is what we need to do so that this does not happen again. It's similar, uh, we were talking a little bit before we went live about the uh, hearing or commission looking into 9-11. That had a lot of flaws, but the basic thing of that there's some investigation of how did this happen? Why did it happen? And how do we prevent something like 9-11 from happening again? That's valid for a government to be investigating and to be thinking about. When it's so highly produced, yeah, I had the same kind of mixed reaction. On the one hand, in, a, in our current um, uh, 21st century world where people are much more visual, they read less. If you just issue a report, like who's going to look at it? So, so the fact that it's presented in a way that is more, that you could think of as more digestible, I could see an argument for that. I don't think that's what we're quite getting here. So there's elements that it, that's not the only reason they're having this so public on camera. So, uh, so th there's 
I think there is an element of this is political. It's um, for a political purpose. The and we can talk some about that. I even had the reaction like, is this a hearing? Um, and some people who dismiss it, but I don't think this is. It's you have to think about this, but it's not grounds to dismiss everything. Have characterized it like this looks like another impeach impeachment trial. And that, particularly for the first, so we've had two of these sessions, the first one, I thought it has that atmosphere. This is now, like, why would, here's a third impeachment of Trump. And is that exactly what the commission uh, or this, this committee should be doing? I don't think so. And then there was also, there's the issue of, this is not a bipartisan committee. And that's worth thinking about as well, and that the McCarthy is the majority leader in, in uh, Congress appointed or at, like recommended five Republicans to this committee and Pelosi turned down two. And it's not obvious that she had ground. I, I could see some grounds. We could talk about that for why she could might dismiss some people who were nominated, but for the people she dismissed, I did not think good grounds were given for it. Well, let's let's dig into that a bit. So one thought I was reflecting on is what would it take for this kind of investigation to be objective? And my thought is that by having a bipartisan panel is it's not inherently objective. It doesn't I mean, you could have a whole bunch of people who are just not going to behave well, yeah. whatever configuration. So I don't think that's the hallmark of objectivity. But let's let's talk about why why would there be a, a good reason to make it bipartisan, if any, and what would what do you think are the reasons given for not taking some of the the Republicans who are put forward? Yeah, I think widely, and this is what you're bringing up in terms of it's not it doesn't guarantee objectivity, but the reason you would want um, some of the Republicans on, and even some people skeptical of some of the claims that have been made and were in the news and the news reporting of it is that when you think, so part of what they presented in these two things is um, excerpts from interviews and questioning of various people, some lawyers, some generals. And so, um, so like a cross section of people who had some connection or involvement, that doesn't mean to say they were responsible for the attack. They might have been trying to prevent them, or something, but they had involvement of what of the lead up and aftermath of January sixth. And one of the reasons to have people who are not all on the same side politically is it's easy that you ask a few questions. They might even be like a little bit leading questions to this, and you hear what you want to hear, and then you then you just stop and you don't ask any more probing, difficult questions see if their story holds up or are there inconsistencies if you push a little bit and you want that like if this is a real supposed to be fact finding about what happened and part of the facts are getting interviewing people and getting their testimonies you want that to happen and if it's again it's not impossible for all the democrats to do that to ask difficult questions challenging questions questions that don't come from sort of the direction in which they're already leaning, which I think is clearly that Trump should be impeached. I mean, given the two impeachment hearings. So, um, 
and that like yeah i i think that that's right that you want that the democrats could do it but i'm skeptical that they did do it so it would have been better i think to have republicans who actually were taking this seriously but ask nevertheless asking challenging questions um that the democrats probably didn't ask of the witnesses this is probably something we should talk about later in the conversation but it does occur to me that it if there are republicans who are skeptical and would really be interested in the facts they're likely putting themselves in a difficult position by taking part in a panel like this in an investigation because because of the outside role that donald trump still has in the republican party and that as as we've seen in the, in the recent elections people are looking for his endorsement if you don't have his endorsement you're in trouble and someone might primary you and things like that so so there's there's a worry that the better people who might come forward or who might whose names might forward, won't do this because they're, they're worried about the consequences which is itself we should come back to that but i think that's definitely a dynamic that i would not be surprised if it's operating in the background yeah i think that's right um in so mccarthy nominated five republicans to serve on the committee and pelosi accepted said i would accept three of these I'm not accepting two of them. And I could see grounds for not accepting some people nominated. Here's at least two. That one, you're thinking of the person as part of the subject of the investigation. So part of what they're investigating is like, what were the communications with the White House before and during January 6th? And there were people in, in the House calling and so on. And if, that's what you're investigating and they nominated someone who's the subject of the investigation i could imagine but both democrat or republican if you think no but what we're, we're looking into what they did we can't have them on the committee looking into what they did um so that would be valid grounds but i from what i saw that's not grounds given for it, it was i think jim banks and jim jordan were the two that were nominated and pelosi said no i won't take these but it wasn't on grounds like that. And I could see if they nominated someone who will just be obstructionist from start to finish. So there's a difference between asking witnesses challenging questions and so on, and trying to just prevent the committee from doing what it's mandated to do. And if they thought someone like that has been nominated to object to that, but I did not see good grounds given for why the, 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 the Pelosi was only accepting three of the five Republicans. Um, and the result is that there's Liz Cheney on the committee, but there's not the people nominated by McCarthy. And that, uh, I think, rightly makes people more suspicious of the committee's work. So with that said, and and the other thing we were talking about before we went live is the timing of the report. So the report is supposed to be, so the hearings are what we found out so far, and the report will be written and published sometime in the fall, I think, or close to the fall, September is the date I've heard uh, thrown around. And that, I think, raises the other kind of concern that is that being, is it just going to take that much time to put it together? And that's, you know, that's reasonable if it is going to take that much time. Or is it being timed to release in such a way that there's some political advantage uh, for, for the elections, uh, midterm elections too? So but 
having said all that, do you think that what you've heard and what's being put forward, is there still enough objectivity or is, is there still something here to pay attention to and uh, sort of with qualifications in terms of what you've said so far? Yeah, I think so. I'm interested in what your reaction to the first two days has been. My um, view is you have to look at it with all these caveats in mind that it's not bipartisan, it's not really a hearing. And I do think there's some political motivation and sort of grandstanding about this, uh, that it is, I mean, the, the view I think rightly is that the Democrats are going to do very badly in the midterm elections and that this might be something that helps them not do quite as badly. Um, but on the other hand, as we started off with, this is a serious issue, very serious issue. And we are, I think, learning certain things about what happened. It's important to pay attention to that. And then I also think just we're now some distance away from it. Um, so uh, we did, uh, we were talking about before, we did a podcast, I mean, a week or something after, I forget exactly when it was, uh, January 6th, and it's still raw, you're still, stuff is coming out, you're still learning. It, this is an important thing to reflect back on and to try to see the total. And part of, I think what we're getting from what they're presenting is trying to, it's not always effective, but trying to see it as a total. And that's important. Like, this is an important event of what happened in the country to think about. I, I if you want to liken it to something, the, this for younger viewers, this might not be resonate too much, but like the OJ trial. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of problems with the OJ trial, including, I think, how the prosecution proceeded, how they presented things that they, I mean, the most infamous thing that they allowed OJ to try on the gloves and, oh, look, it doesn't fit. Um, there's all kinds of bad things. It's but that you can't dismiss the whole trial as you don't as though you didn't learn anything. And indeed, I think if you watch it, it it's the evidence is overwhelming that O.J. Simpson is the murderer and he got off of the. And so you can be critical of the trial of the prosecution and so on. And yet, I think it's just wrong to dismiss then the whole thing that there's nothing here to see, nothing to learn. Let's move on. That that's a mistake in regard to that, and I seem to think it would be the same mistake in regard to this um, hearing. Yeah, I generally agree with that. I, I'm just to give a comparison. So I watched all of the hearing or testimony, I guess, that Frances Haugen did a few months back. So she was the whistleblower from Facebook who brought out all this information about how Facebook knows that it's harmful to, to teens and Instagram is a problem. And there is a marked difference between these two. Now, obviously different purposes, different subject matter, but the, the feel you get from the, the listening to the Haugen questioning and her, not only her presentation, but just the questions she got from the uh, uh, lawmakers, they were, they were throwing her softball questions and I agree with everything you're saying. Now tell me more about what I wanna hear. And it's just ridiculous in its, flagrant non-objectivity. It's like, we all agree that everything you've said is completely unimpeachable. There's no question about any of the data you're showing us. It's data. Let's, let's all sort of stand in, in awe of this as if you, 
as if you can look at a slide from a slide presentation from some company and know it, the whole context of what actually was said in the meeting and what the people presented it meant. And it was just so, so obviously uh, tendentious. And if you take that as a, a really low point in recent practice of how information is being sought, I think this, uh, with all the criticisms and all the concerns there are with this hearing, uh, these uh, public hearings, they do come across a, a little bit more uh, as we're interested in the truth and we've interviewed actual people and here's some clips from them. So, and I know that we might not get the full picture, but there's definitely less of that perspective that we already know what conclusion we want to get to. Now let's fit the puzzle pieces in to make it seem plausible. I take seriously that they interviewed people at length and you get some of the clips from that. Uh, so I have a, I'm much more open to hearing the rest of it. I, I don't have the sense that I'm being played the way I did with, for example, the, the Haugen hearing, which was completely ridiculous. Uh, and as you said, I think this is this is an actual, this is a real issue. There's, there's no question this needs to be a focus of government activity and reflection. I think pub, beyond the government too, I think it, it's an important issue for everyone to reflect on. So with that in mind, let, let's talk a bit about what, from the first two hearings, what are some observations you took away? I have some, but why don't we start with you? One, and going back to something you raised near the start of when we started talking of people dismissing this as this wasn't a very significant event. I've heard people in effect put it like, yeah, okay, they went into the Capitol, they weren't supposed to be there, but they're sort of walking around taking pictures. Um, and there is some footage of some people doing something like that who seem like they're tourists who are trespassing, that you're not supposed to be a tourist right now, Congress is in session and so on. But the idea that that is what happened um, that that's the essential characterization of the event is crazy. And part of what has come out, and th this is part of putting it as a, as having a, a kind of um, view of a total here, is when you see some of the footage, some of which wasn't seen before, when you hear the experiences of some of the Capitol police and so on, nobody could think that what this was, was, yeah, some people trespassing, and taking photos. This was a real attack. Um, the police experienced it like that. They were overwhelmed by it. I think one of the officers they were interviewing, and even there, I think the, who they chose is probably because they're camera friendly and so on. So there's an illegitimate aspect likely to that. But nevertheless, so you can think that and still think Okay, but this is representative of a number of the Capitol Police. This was their what their experience was like, and she put it something like it was a war zone, and it um, and that's what it was experienced as. And I think the footage it backs that up. It's not everybody there was um, fighting the police, but this was a massive attack, and if, if you're watching these or listening or watching to the, the hearings, I don't think you can come, you can honestly come away with thinking what it was, was just some tourist trespass. Yeah, and I think that it, it's really worth underscoring that point you made that you can find people who were wandering around clueless and maybe they didn't even plan to be part of this. Maybe they got swapped sort of 
swept along with this crowd and they didn't know that this was how it's going to play out. And there are scenes, and this is something that has come up in some of the critics, that they'll show one video clip of doors which were left open or, or allowed to be, and, and some of the, the attackers walk through the doors. And so the, the narrative you get is, well, they, they were let in. And that, that is a classic example of clipping video out of context in order to, to mislead people. And when you see the footage that hasn't been released and some of the footage that has been released, uh, which I, I rewatched in preparation for today, it is really frightening. I mean, I, I was sitting and I, it was sort of reliving what I remember from 2021, watching it as the news was dripping out from uh, various clips. The, the, the scene to think, so I think it's a, the key point I, I wanted to get across is that it doesn't have to be true that every single person who, who breached into the Capitol was, had a premeditated goal and this is what, what they were going to do. So it, it's completely plausible that some people didn't. And I think that's just, it's a fact there were so many people there, but there were enough people who came with a goal and who acted on it. That that I think goes to what you're saying about the, their, the essential characterization is th these aren't just people who wandered in, tourists taking pictures. There's evidence that they were casing the, the venue. There's evidence of planned military um, uh, structures in the sense that you, if you're a crowd, you, there's more effective ways of breaching a barrier if you stand in a certain formation, you move in that formation, and then you have coordination on that. You don't do that if it's a spontaneous thing where we, go, we just got angry and we thought we'd break some windows. Uh, and I think the one thing that is worth re-watching just to think more about this is some of the scenes where the police are trying to confront the, the, the invaders or the attackers. And I, I watched two clips that I wanna highlight. One is the, um, where Ashley Babbitt is shot. And so the, the, whole, the scene you can find is pretty easy to find. And what happens there is that you, you can see the police who are standing guard at this door, which has glass windows. They clearly have no ability to withstand this crowd pushing on again. So they, they retreat and so they, they leave. And in this gap of about 15 to 20 seconds before they, between when they leave and when the tactical officers show up, you can see that the people on the other side of this door are panicked. They feel like they're gonna get rushed. And you listen to what this crowd are telling the police and what they're just the intimidation that is going through. It is really, it's infuriating to see this. And it's, it's it just, there's so many things that are bad about it. So the disrespect to the, the, the police officer trying to do their job and the fact that they're trying to deescalate. It's not like the police officers are shouting in their faces and trying to tell them and, and sort of being really aggressive in response. It's, it's they're being overly passive and, and accommodating. Uh, so that's one thing just to rewatch that and say, how, is the, how can you characterize any of this as no big deal. Like you should not behave that way towards police in, in any reasonable context. Even in, a, in a, even in a protest, this is not appropriate. And then I think there, there are scenes on the outside for, that were released as part of the first hearing that need to be watched, that you can't say, oh, the, the news media clipped this. They, they made it look worse. It's bad. And you can see that the, these are video cameras that are positioned on the building. This is not just someone who happened to be there. Uh, the idea that this was a, one, that it's a hoax, which is one thing you hear, 
and two, that it, it's something that just got out of hand. I think neither of those is plausible when you get more of the evidence uh, of what was happening there. Uh, it's really chilling, uh, I have to say that. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about the um, what led up to this and, and some of the experience. So, so the whole narrative of the, 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 the investigation is, Donald Trump has at least some responsibility, moral, maybe legal responsibility. And, and this was the obviously the, the topic of the, the second impeachment that he incited the riot. I don't, I don't think we're gonna talk about the legal issue. I don't think that's something we, we're expert in, but I think there's definitely something to say about the moral responsibility and what he was saying and what the what and you can what you can hear the crowd saying are their reasons for being outraged and i think this is something we talked about originally which is if you are pounded with the story that the election was stolen from you there's massive fraud the the country's on the brink and this is the 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 moment i don't think the reasonable thing to do is to attack the capital but you can understand why people are upset if they if they believe this and what's come out is just the, the, the degree to which the, there was no basis for this. And that, that was known within the White House. Um, yeah, so the part of what we're getting is how many people knew that these allegations that there's significant electoral fraud um, in various states that there was no evidence for it. Most of the people within the White House knew that. Some even seem seems like they told Trump that it's all dismissed. That that's important to know and important for anyone who's has some sympathy. That look, you can't have this many claims about election fraud without. They must have some evidence. That inference that they couldn't wouldn't keep saying this unless they had some evidence that if you make that inference part of what's coming out should you should challenge that do i really have grounds to think that that it's so many people yeah we don't have evidence but they go along in various ways with the push by trump and probably some others but uh, certainly like some of his circle at giuliani um that Oh no, but of course there's fraud, and and then in the election, and in terms of thinking about it as, is there any evidence here? I think something that the what has come out that they're just in effect reminding us of or reiterating that Trump claimed fraud before the election even happened. So like, could he have evidence that there, there's fraud in these states and so before the election happened? And there's a long run up where he said, the only way I can lose is if there's massive fraud. And um, so he telegraphed that if I lose, I'm gonna claim fraud, regardless of whether I have any evidence for it. Um, I'm just, I'm gonna claim fraud. It's, I'm, he was asked about the, uh, transition of if he loses the transition and he doesn't guarantee anything and so it's all telegraphed in advance that this is what he's going to do and if again if someone um in in the country is undecided or in terms of thinking about because there i think it's natural to think you can't have all these people saying there's election fraud without they must have some evidence and so on 
you should really rethink that, that it's, no, it's possible. They, they had a lot of voices claiming this on zero evidence and they knew they have zero evidence. Um, and I think that in terms of understanding what happened, that's important um, in terms of, of processing this whole thing. And we talked a lot about in the, in the first podcast we did just after the January 6th of this issue of what evidence has been brought forth about election fraud and it's essentially zero on the scale that's being alleged it's essentially zero i want to talk more about that uh, but we've gotten a question so far thanks to all of you watching and who are supporting us through super chat we appreciate uh your being here and your support so one question has come up is uh is there a reason to expect or any chance that what's coming out in these hearings will convince anyone to change their position on the incident? And the person asking the question says he's skeptical because of widespread tribalism. Do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I, I we do live in a tribal age. So yes, it it's not going to sway that many people, I think. Um, and Part of what we talked about, some of the valid criticisms of the, the whole process makes it such, precisely because there are some valid criticisms of it, makes it even less likely that it's going to um, have a persuasive impact on a lot of people. But on the other hand, um, you have to think of it at the margins. So, and there's a lot of people who are just independent. They, they don't side and don't think of the sentence as I'm Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. They're more independent. And it's the, in a certain way, you can think of like, that's the audience and that you should understand what happened on January 6th. And there I do think someone who's, not hasn't descended so far into the tribalism will if they actually listen will learn some things and may change their mind or may just form a stronger view than they had before uh, of certain positions and th that that's an important thing to happen so i wanted to talk a bit about one of the main lines that the hearings have brought forward, which is that the what should the president do in a situation like this? And what did Trump actually do? And what is the evidence about this? So for people who don't remember, there was a, really nothing coming out of the White House while this was happening. And afterwards, I think it was the day after or very shortly afterwards, um, Trump released a video. I forget exactly. It was about a minute and a half long, and this is yeah, him saying, the day of. "This was, oh, it was the, the day, day of." Okay, hours into the right attack. So not at a time when it might have actually had some impact, I guess, uh, but not as soon as it could have been. And the the gist of that, and people can go find it, is it's very sympathetic to the people who attacked the Capitol. It treats them as rightly as well, I understand why you're hurt and you're good people, but we got we have to have peace. So you, you need to you need to go home. But we were wronged, but you still have to go home. We need to have peace. So it, it, it's not the kind of statement that I would have expected the commander in chief to issue when one of the branches of government is being attacked in this way. 
Um, I just want to get your reactions to what has come out on this topic. I think this is the, if not the most important issue for the committee to investigate and provide findings on, if not the most important, then it's top three. That So the what we saw from the um, outward public face during January 6th is Trump missing in action. And again, if you want to liken it to something where somewhat similar, the 9-11, I, I, I mean, I certainly remember this. I bet you remember it. It was, there's footage of where, I think Bushy's in a, a elementary school classroom or something, and the official comes and tells him there's been an, I mean, we now think it's an attack on the World Trade Center. Um, and you, his face changes completely and he's rushed out of the room. But then for hours and hours and hours, we did not hear from the president who's the commander in chief. Now there, and that just caused real worry and heightened the fear, I think in the country there, it's uh, the story, what turns out, but this, you didn't, the, the point is you didn't know this at the time, but you found this out later that like, they didn't know the scale of the attack during 9-11. They didn't know if the president is under attack. He's commander in chief. So he was put secluded. I think he was up in Air Force One circling or something. And it's like, it's not a time that he's going to make a public address because they're trying to figure out the scale of the attack and what's happening. And, and is the president, I mean, the Pentagon was targeted. Congress was targeted. Is the president also targeted? So there was a legitimacy that he was missing in action. But if you found out that not just like publicly he's missing in action, but behind the scenes, he's also doing nothing. That 9-11 happens, they rush him out, and then it's he's just watching it on TV or something, like not talking to the generals, not doing anything as commander-in-chief. You would have a very different view of George Bush on the day of 9-11. I mean, that's not what it didn't turn out, that he's just watching it on TV, not doing anything. But what is coming out it seems like that's what Trump did. You've got an attack on the, in Washington on the Capitol. I don't think there's any allegations to think Trump's life is in danger. There might be an attack on him or something like that. And what the testimony so far is that he did absolutely nothing for hours. And if that, is, if that does not disqualify you to be commander in chief of the United States Army, um, what would? And that, so that this is why I think it's so important. If, if what it turned, if that's true, and so far there's nobody who's contesting that that's true, uh, that is such a damnation of what happened on um, January 6th. That, that, that I think this is one of the most important to what happened behind the scenes. It's clearly publicly he did nothing, but is it also that privately at QA commander in chief, he did nothing? Or there's even allegations he did worse than nothing. When we were talking about, in preparation for today, we were talking about the attitude some people have taken towards Mike Pence. And so in comparison, Mike Pence did these two things we now know. Publicly, we know he, he, went, he refused to go along with the demands from President Trump to, to uh, um, withhold the certification process and stop it. And so he, he, he refused to do that. So it went through. And so we know that. And a lot of people look up to, 
to Pence and say, good, I mean, I'm glad you did that. So that's one reaction people have had since then. But now it's coming to light that it was Mike Pence who called, uh, I think it was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike uh, General Milley, saying, what can we do here? We need to do something. And this has now elevated Mike Pence in some people's view to, well, now he's, here's one hero in our midst. And you, you made the point that uh, I thought was really interesting, which is, and credit to him for doing that. I mean, I think that's a reasonable thing to do, but I mean, how do you think of this in terms of the valuation here? Yes, I think it is important to say this was good on his part to do this. Likely, it's also they heard that there's chance of hanging Mike Pence. So I can understand why he's on the phone calling the, to send somebody. Now we need reinforcement and backup. But more broadly, I think it was he legitimately thought the capital is under attack and it, like this can't stand in America. And it can't be that, oh, we deliberate for a week about the, is this legitimate or not? And this, it, you need action, immediate action in regard to this. That's good on his part. And as not caving in to the, to try to interfere with the, the whole process of the election. In my books, it doesn't make him a hero. Um, unless he repudiated his past actions in the sense that like, you're part of the administration, part of the administration whose head has been saying for months that if I lose, it's uh, but only it only can be because of fraud. So there's no other way I could lose. And you're a participant in that. So I would have, I have some respect for what he did. It doesn't make him a hero in my book. I'd have more respect if there was a complete repudiation of Trump and some of Pence's role in that, um, of, a, of enabling Trump, then I, I would have a more favorable view of Pence than I do. But it's certainly good. I mean, it's the uh, what he did on January 6th, and it's certainly good in comparison to Trump. Yeah, the, but that's the worry, right? If you start with a low standard, that is going to make Pence look like a giant. But the standard has to be higher than just what I think Trump's dereliction was or his, his lack of action, according to the evidence so far. Um, let's talk about one other thread here, which I think is really significant. We talked about this originally right after the attack itself. I think we went on in depth on this topic, this is the issue of the arbitrary and how objectivism thinks of this category in contrast to claims that are true or claims that are false. And I recommend, we're gonna talk a bit about it here, but go. you can re-listen to that conversation we had in January, uh, 2021, if you wanna get more in depth on it. But just, I think it's worth putting this on the table because what comes through in the hearings and what they presented about what Trump was told and the kind of pushback he got to the claims that elections were stolen, there was fraud, all, all these claims that he's made and, and the various theories and conspiracy thinking type uh, claims that th this is the point we made originally, uh, that the, the way to think of this is that these are arbitrary claims. There's, it's not that they're born of evidence and the evidence just isn't strong enough to support them. It's just that they're born of no evidence and, and in, in defiance of the need for evidence. And, and as soon as you knock down one, 
there's another one that comes along. And, and again, it too is in the same category. So maybe it'd be useful, Ankar, you teach about this in, in your courses. What is just as a framework, what is the objectivist view when it of the arbitrary as a category? And how do you see it coming out in this context? And what, what lessons do you take from it? In various ways, the Trump administration in general, I think is a textbook example of what the arbitrary is and how destructive it is. But if we narrow it now to that, the aspect that's really manifest in January 6th and lead up and aftermath of January 6th, it's in the claims of election fraud. So the arbitrary is a claim, uh, an idea, a proposition, it can sometimes be a whole theory put forth that's devoid of evidence. There's no actual evidence and reasoning and arguments in support of the idea or the claim. And yet you're supposed to take the claim seriously, nevertheless, that either just accept it as true or accept it at least like it's possible that this happened. So we need to investigate this, think about it. So the, so the, the arbitrary is a claim put forth without evidence and really in defiance of the need for evidence. I can just, whatever I feel, whatever pops into my mind, I can treat as it's true or probable or possible. I can toss it out and then everyone has to consider it and then think, is it possible? Is it probable? Should we regard this as true? The moment you allow that into this is how it, what the, the quest for knowledge looks like, you destroy the quest for knowledge. And that part of what came out, um, I mean, there were certainly things we knew before this, but you can put it what the, the hearing so far is reinforced is that the claims put forth about election fraud and here it's pretty the claims put forth by the administration so by trump by giuliani um that's not there might be somebody somewhere who has some evidence that in some one voting place something went wrong but that's not the same does trump have any evidence what is clear i think if it wasn't clear before is that he has no evidence Juliana has no evidence. There's no evidence put forth. It's all arbitrary. I can imagine something like this happening. Prove it ain't so. Or the, the fraudulent presentation of something as evidence. So some little clip about, look, this guy's carrying a suitcase. How can that happen? This is not proper. And if you watch, I mean, and this is part of what, if you watch the whole thing, no, this is the regular activity within when they're counting votes and so on. There's it's not evidence of any fraud. And there was no ever, there was never any reason to think of it as evidence. It's just the arbitrary assertion. Look what happened here. Isn't that some evidence? Prove it ain't so. And the moment you allow that someone can put forth and it's now your obligation to prove it ain't so, it's endless you will never and it's more you will never knock down the idea that there was fraud because and what this is what happened it seems to what happened like this is how our government was functioning arbitrary assertion after arbitrary assertion of fraud and then there would have to be actual people in the government in the justice department 
investigate this and prove this ain't so. And then every time the reply is, okay, what about this? And they put forth some other arbitrary. And I mean, they, it's concocted into Venezuela's involved, the voting machines. And if you allow that in, it's, you cannot put a stop to it. So objectivism, what it's advice about the arbitrary is, the moment you have an arbitrary claim, you have to bar it at the door of consideration. It has no standing in a quest for knowledge. You have to say no to it, not start to entertain it, prove, try to prove that it ain't so and so. It, when, once you do that, you've wrecked your whole process of seeking knowledge. And that, that is sounds like what happened in regard to all these investigations. And it's so part of what you're getting is the, they put forth something, it gets knocked down, and they just make up another arbitrary thing. And then, so you can cling forever to the idea that there was election fraud if you allow that I can hold ideas that are arbitrary. That is that for which I have no evidence. I just feel and I want it to be so. And why couldn't it be and prove it ain't so? It's so destructive. And part of what you see is that that's really what was happening um, in the lead up to the election and certainly in the aftermath. When we talked about this at the time, I think, I don't remember if this came out at the time, but I remember since then, uh, I, I re-listened to the recorded phone interview between Trump and the Georgia election officials, uh, which we, I think we talked about previously. And one interesting thing is, so this is Trump, I don't think he knew he was being recorded. So this was not his, I don't think he was putting on a, a show for anyone. This is just Trump unfiltered the way he, he speaks with other officials. What, to, to your point about how, as soon as you let this in, you can't ever satisfy. There's never a, a, a way to block the arbitrary once you concede it, its legitimacy. And in the conversation, he keeps insisting that there's fraud and the officials from Georgia keep reminding him that, well, we looked at this and that wasn't what you thought it was. When we, we looked at that thing and it wasn't what you thought it was. But the, you get, what you get from listening to the recording is he wants it to be true. So it has to be true. So it's sort of like my wish has to make the facts the case. So go find me the facts, go make it, go satisfy yourselves. But I, I'm satisfied, I don't need the evidence. How could this be? I mean, you, you're just giving me obstacles. I want you to give me solutions. And the solutions is yes, make my wish a reality. Uh, and, and that was, it's really striking. And they're being super polite. They're not even confrontational with him because I, I don't think they have the sense of what, what, what to do. But it, it's interesting how they, a few of them, I think one of them, Rafsenberger is the one who says, look, I, we can't give you certain things because there's legal protections for some of this data and you can't just go and overrule that. But just the, the hearing someone behave on this premise in a, in a uh, unfiltered way is really illuminating because you get the sense it's, it's my, my desire for some claim to be true is all that's needed. And now if you don't buy that, that's your problem, not my problem. Uh, so I, for people who are interested in getting a flavor of that, definitely go find that. I think it's easily found recording. We can put it clips uh, recording links to the recording if people want to find it in the show notes. Um, and this is just so bit, putting it go ahead. A, a little more, uh, not a little more, but putting it in terms that Ayn Rand often talks about. She talks about dictators and would-be dictators as 
they want their whims to be able to supersede the facts. And the assertion of the arbitrary is that issue in regard to knowledge, that my feelings and whims about what I want to be true is, look, it trumps your arguments, it trumps the facts, it trumps the evidence. I couldn't care less about that. It's my whims should govern what is true and what we claim is true. And that's why it's so destructive that when you allow the arbitrary in, you allow into a process or a quest for knowledge, whims. Um, and as in any other area, if you allow whims in, all you're going to reach is destruction. We've gotten quite a few questions, and I'd like to make time for some of them. Let's talk a bit. Let's turn to another topic, which I think is important. And that is some of the reactions or the cultural reactions to the hearings and 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 the subject of the hearing. So one one issue is the criticisms of the hearings. We talked earlier about some either valid or plausibly valid criticisms one might have of the hearings. I want to talk about some other kinds of criticisms that have come up. One we touched on already, which is that I from the moment after the event, I think, or soon after it, um, I've heard people actively playing down what happened. Uh, so this is the, the claim that it was a political protest that got out of hand, or that this was in one person that who, who many years ago I used to respect as an intellectual, but I can't actually respect him anymore. Uh, Roger Kimball, he's really prominent in certain conservative circles. He has made the claim that this is all a hoax and take seriously he means it as a hoax this is all drummed up and that to me is uh and so if, if your view is that this is all exaggerated then your view of the hearings have to be well this is nonsense and one of the the, char the characterizations that have come out so far and this is something that tucker carlson who has a really big show on fox the way he's characterized it, and you can hear it echoed uh, in other media and by other by by politicians, is calling this a show trial, with all of the connotations that that activates about the way the Soviets conducted themselves. Uh, I think to call it a show, even if you think there are problems with the objectivity of the way they're conducting this hearing, it is nothing like a show trial. I mean, a show to to call this a show trial is to demean. Not to demean, but to 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 uh, reduce the severity of what the show trials were really like and how bad they were uh, by uh, in effect likening them to this. That, um, so so that I think is that is is really un uh, unjust to what's happening and not at all, in my view, a legitimate complaint about the 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 hearings. I'm curious if you've seen other kinds of things along these lines. I watched at least a lengthy segment from the Tucker Carlson show that was airing at the time of the first primetime hearing uh, or session of the, the two sessions that have been held so far. I think it is worth talking a little bit further about the Tucker Carlson because there, he, as you said, he's widely watched. I think he's the most widely watched commentator on TV. Um, the spin that he's putting on it is the spin then that many, many people are going to be prone to 
it's very revealing the spin that he's putting on it. One of the most revealing things, when I heard this, I didn't quite believe it that so they, the Fox News decided not to air this hearing in prime time because it's showtime or at least propaganda on the part of the Democrats and we don't air propaganda from Democrats. Okay, so that already, that, that this is supposedly a news network and they're not hearing, they're not showing this. You could have then commentary afterwards pointing out what you think is all the elements that are uh, propaganda and so on. That they don't show it at all. And then during his show, they didn't have commercials. So he's telling them, this is all, uh, it's like a show trial, it's propaganda, while simultaneously being worried that if viewers during a commercial click over to it, what you'll see is what you said, that whatever your criticisms of it, this is not a show trial, it's not propaganda. I'm actually learning things I didn't know about January 6th. And they might keep watching and not um, change the channel back to Fox News. And like they know that, that's why they're not showing, not just they're not showing the trial, that's one, I mean, the, the hearings, that's one thing. Not airing commercials is so revealing and so insulting towards their audience that you're so stupid that even I've told you this is propaganda in a show trial, you'll click over and then watch it because, oh no, this doesn't seem like it, like a, a show trial. It, it's such contempt for their audience that I, that's part of why I didn't, but I don't, I don't think Tucker Carlson respects his audience just as I don't think Trump respects the people he supposedly said the middle of the country who's overlooked, I don't think, he ever goes there. I don't think he has any respect for those people. He doesn't have any interest in those people. I think of that in terms of Fox News as well. But this level of contempt for their audience, but I, I, when I first started it, really, they didn't show commercial. And then some of what Carlson says in there is it's um, one of his criticisms, and I wrote this down. I think it's word for word, but it's pretty cl close, is yeah, this is like propaganda or show trial, and the people doing it should be ashamed of themselves. But more than that, they're, and this is the quote, as I say, it might not be word for word, but it's close. Complic they're complicit, or they have complicity in a campaign to fool the public. That's his criticism of it. Now, if he doesn't think Trump has complicity in a campaign to fool the public, over months and months and months that the election, election is a fraud. Um, and he's saying it even before the election happens. And, and that you can say this with a straight face, this is your criticism of them, that they're complicit in trying to fool the public. And part of the hearing is about how Trump has done this for months and months and months, despite being told by so many people that there's no evidence for anything. And this is his, that's his criticism. It tells like, is this a person who has any interest in the truth? Um, I think the answer is no to that. I mean, and it's that he, and it, then thinking that he has such a big audience and he doesn't have any interest in the truth and he basically telegraphs that he doesn't have interest in the truth. That, like, that in terms of thinking more widely about the, 
America today and our culture. So that is interesting and something to pay attention. It's part of why I watched, I wanted to see what he has to actually say about this because so many people are listening to him and don't seem to be able to say, oh yeah, but that's all BS. Well, let's turn to that. Let's talk a bit about beyond, including Tucker Carlson, but beyond that, just what the hearings and this, the wider issues, what they can tell us about the state of our culture. I think a number of things that have come up already, uh, we've touched on some of this, uh, one thing I wanted to single out is something I mentioned earlier when we were talking about who was selected to be part of the uh, investigation. And, and the point I was raising is, is that I can believe that there are better people in, among the Republicans who, who wouldn't want their name put forward or wouldn't even want to participate because Donald Trump remains such a, an influence within the party. And that this would this would be their political the end of their political career if they if they, which is what I think a lot of people think is the case with Liz Cheney like this may well be that she's she's not going to be part of the Republican Party anymore they're going to drum her out and to me that the fact that Trump has this kind of power over the Republican Party it's more than just a former president who's waiting for his next chance to be reelected I think it's there's something really unhealthy about this kind of influence, given everything that's being, that has come out that you didn't need an investigation to see, the things that you can look back and say, think about the handling of COVID, think about everything that happened before COVID, and that just the person as a president and how he, he was conducting himself. And then add on top of this, what you, what you know already about uh, the events of January 6th and, and, and subsequently, that he is still part of the GOP that they don't, that they're afraid of him to such a degree and that they're scurrying to get his endorsement. To me, that's, that's really frightening. It, it means, I, I never had a high opinion of the GOP since paying attention to this the last 20 years or so. I never thought they were a, a, a party of ideas that is somehow compromising on, I don't, I don't think they had ideas to begin with for the last few decades, maybe longer. But this is to this is the point at which it's there's not any concern with ideas or principles. This is we have a certain leader, and even though he's not in power, we're really afraid of what he might say to us. He, his influence is so considerable. Uh, this it, it's really damning of the party itself, in my view, uh, as an intellectual political phenomenon. And I think that the, when you look at this, it's. Um, I'm trying to remember this this politician's name. I can't. It's not coming back to me. But the, and I hope I get this the facts straight. Someone can correct us in the chat if not. There was a politician who was critical of Trump in the last two years or so, and she was coming up for re-election. This happened recently, and she realized that unless she makes amends with him, she there's no chance for her to succeed. And just low level, state level type of politician, if I remember correctly. So she went outside of Trump Tower in New York City. And I think she live streamed or at least videotaped herself speaking a monologue to Trump because I don't think he can hear her from up wherever he lives on that building, but effectively saying, forgive me, I have sinned against you. I'm here to repent and to win back your, your support. And she got it. So she, she abased herself. I mean, think about, I mean, I'm not accidentally using religious terms. I think there's really definitely, there's really a religious aspect to this, which is, 
we have some authority figure. He's really powerful. Dare not cross him. And if you do cross him, you have to make sure you go back and try to win his favor. And to me, that's this is not a political party. I mean, it's 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 it reminds me a bit of what I think the mafia is lo looks like. It reminds me of how religions operate. This is not what you would expect of a political phenomenon, political movement to the extent the, the Republicans are such a thing. Uh, so, so I, I find that really disturbing for this the state of um, political scene. I'm just interested in your reactions more broadly about the impact on or what can be said about the culture right, from this. Yes, it's what you brought up is part of what I find disturbing. I wrote right after Trump's election of part of what I thought about the meaning of his election was, and part of what was frightening was the kind of campaign that he ran and that he seemed to have significant enthusiastic support, not people holding their nose and I'm voting for him because I hate Hillary even more. I hate Trump, but I hate Hillary even more. It was enthusiasm about him. And then that we're seriously, in terms of the country, there's serious speculation that Trump will run again so that the Republican Party won't bar him. Like We don't want this as our presidential nominee. We, we'll do everything we can to not have somebody like this as our presidential nominee. There's not that kind of, that's part of what you were talking about in terms of the party. It's exactly the reverse. It's the abasement and the, the self-abasement to try to win Trump's favor, so that that's the party, but more widely, just in terms of that we're seriously debating that if he runs, he could win, that he would get enough support that he would win uh, if he ran again as president. That I find really disturbing. And I think if you told people 10 years ago, you gave a scenario, like, a president has done this, and you list some of what Trump did as president, and you brought up COVID, I mean, COVID and his reaction to it, and was a disaster, and just his like, the total non-scientific, anti-scientific approach, sidelining the CDC, I mean, it was a complete disaster. If you gave people a list, like this is what this president does, and you don't tell them it's Democrat or Republican, I think a majority of Democrats and a majority of Republicans would say, okay, well, we're not going to vote for a president like that again. Um, but he's never going to win re-election. And that, that's things before January 6th. But even if all that didn't happen and all you had was after the election, like, let's say even before the election, Trump wasn't saying, oh, if I lose, it has to be fraud. Let's say the election had, and then he starts saying there was fraud. The only reason I lost is fraud. It's massive fraud. And he's doing that for two months leading up to January 6th. And then you have the January 6th attack, which uh, we've said we characterize as a terrorist attack. And you find out that he does nothing while this is happening. I think if you just gave that scenario to anyone 10 years ago, imagine a president who after an election is alleging that there's uh, um, all kinds of fraud. It goes to court, like I think it's 60 plus cases go to court. There, 
apart from one, they're tossed out, they're rejected. It's the Congress and Senate is going to certify this and so on. He's still alleging all kinds of fraud. And then there's an attack on the Capitol and the president does nothing as commander in chief. And when he comes on air, he calls he about how he loves these people who have been attacking the Capitol. They should go home now because they're not going to succeed and so on, but he loves them. And you said, you don't, again, tell them Democrat, Republican, would you vote for this? I think the majority of people would say, no, there's no way in hell I would vote for someone like that. And yet we're at the stage where it appears that a lot of people would support um, him. That, it, I find it very depressing, unfortunately, but I think it's symptomatic of how tribal the nation has become in the last 20 plus years. And I would just to make this more concrete that takes seriously, he's the commander in chief. Notice all the criticism uh, of what happened in Uvalde of the police. And it's the criticism is now, I think there has to be an investigation of what really happened and so on. And this is part of why there has to be this kind of investigation, I think for January 6th of, is it really true that the president did nothing? Um, the, all the criticism of the police commander, you're waiting outside for 45 minutes doing nothing and everybody's reaction, like if that's really what it is, everybody's reaction is this guy should be fired. And the idea is, that, oh no, we're gonna appoint him a month later back to the chief of police and so on. It's like, everybody thinks that's crazy. And it's basically the same scenario here that if it really, if it's, you have a commander in chief who does nothing when the Congress and Capitol is attacked. You should have the same reaction as if that's what happened with the, in Uvalde with the police, that it's, they, if, if it really turns out they were just scared, they didn't want to go in, so on. And you, one views that as a complete dereliction of their duty. Now, I don't know if that's really what happened, but if it is, that, and that's how it was being painted and people's reaction to it, you should have exactly the same reaction to Trump as commander in chief. And it, it just morally disbars him from the office. Yeah, and just to reemphasize that, we're, we're here talking about how people evaluate Trump, not about what you should do to vote. We're not, we're not giving voting advice if he does run or anything like that. I, I wanna uh, add one, one item of information that slipped my mind and my colleagues reminding me that the, the individual I was describing who went to abase herself outside of Trump Tower, I believe that was Congresswoman Nancy Mace from South Carolina. She was running for a congressional district. And I let's take a couple of questions because I think they'd be useful just to tie up some of the, the threads in the conversation. So one is how do we explain the fact that Donald Trump and his supporters expect to be allowed to get away with whatever lies they want to tell and the person suggesting that the Christian doctrine of grace is the explanation. Uh, do, you, do you find that that's part of the answer or not at all? Or how do you think of that? I don't think that's the essence of the answer. It is true that there's elements in the Christian faith that I think actually give a license to evil. It's not how it's thought of, but the whole conception of you go to a priest and confess and that absolves you of your sins and so on. That makes a mockery of sin, in my view. Like to, If you actually think you've done something wrong, 
to atone for that is not to go talk to a priest in privacy and then it's oh yeah okay i you seem uh repentant so i atone uh, I, I absolve you of your sins that is just a ridiculous conception so there can be an element of that at work here but i think the much broader phenomenon um like how do they think they can get away with it part of the descent into tribalism is nobody now thinks you have to give arguments evidence convince people offer a persuasive case for anything so you've you've got a similar kind of um excusing and whitewashing of the blm protest that many democrats if we think of it like that just that, that this kind of democrat republican should have been much much more condemnatory of elements of these protests and certainly when you get the occupation in seattle the the things happening in portland the idea that there was not outrage on the part of what uh, on the part of democrats about what's happening that this is a breakdown of rule of law we need to to reinstate rule of law and maybe even have some investigation like how is this possible in major cities in the us there's nothing like that on the democrat side and you can ask how do they think they're going to get away with it and it it's we increasingly live in an era that everybody thinks they can get away with things because you can just so this is part of the arbitrary you can just make assertions without um the need for evidence so you can just say well all the black lives matter protests they're peaceful so what there's nothing to see here and so on. and some were but the idea that that's the whole phenomenon is crazy and yet they get away with it so it's the i don't think it's just sort of the religious element in the republican party it's more broadly um religion is tribalism and so it's a tribal mentality and a religious mentality are difficult to distinguish and when you think of the wars in europe of protestants and catholics the lens to look at that through is these are two tribal gangs fighting just one quick thought on that and then final question from our viewer so why one thought i have is that what you're describing if you look at it as separate things it's hard to see that there's a certain dynamic going on so it's it's both true that there are people so democrats who democrats who downplayed all and tried to whitewash the, the violence that we saw in places like portland seattle and some of the riots that occurred with blm uh, protests but i think these interact i think there's an interesting causal relationship which is if you're looking at this and being told no, 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 the fire behind me has nothing to see here. This is not a riot. It's just peaceful, peaceful protest. And they have a, uh, you're deluded if you think there's anything wrong going on here. That, I think that in, leads people to feel like, well, how can they get away with that? Why, why, do, why, am I, why are they lying to me when I can see it's not that way? And I think the reverse is true when, when it's, well, we don't want to have to admit that January 6th was a, a shameful activity and that I, I shouldn't have supported this, the people behind the, the stories about fraud and, and election uh, mismanagement and that whole narrative. And you, you get this, the, I think the similar reaction, which is, well, 
if they can do it, why can't we? And, and, and it, it, the idea that it becomes, I, think, I guess this ties into your point about how once it's accepted, it's fair game. But I think there, there is a certain kind of uh, reciprocal reinforcement. The more it's done, the more both sides feel like they should do it. And it's sort of, well, not exactly revenge, but just vindication that, well, what's wrong with what with this? Um, but let, um, let me bring yeah, up the final question. That, yeah, um, sorry. Let me just bring up this final question because I think it's useful just to tie up. Um, so the, the question begins with an observation that the validity of the vote counts was constitutionally tested in the courts, appealed to the Supreme Court, considered the majority upheld the local validation of the vote. And then once the courts have ruled, an attempt to reverse the vote by intimidation looks like a banana republic style coup d'etat. Why did you say that it wasn't? Well, I agree with part of what was said there, which is all these claims were tested and rejected, or all, all but one of them were significantly found to be flawed uh, in the courts. And there wasn't evidence of mass scale for it. I don't think it was true to say it was stolen. And I think that there were, but on the question, was it a coup d'etat? I think that there was less planning and less conception of what would follow. That that's why I resist calling it a coup in the sense that I think if you're, if you try to get into this mindset, of what would it look like to do that? There would have to be an, a next step. Like who then takes over and what would that look like? And what would you enforce? Not just let's, let's block the certification. And in that sense, I think as much as there seems to be evidence of premeditation, at least with some of the groups involved in January 6th, I don't think it was, it rose to the level of a well-developed plan or an actionable plan for replacing the government once they, if, had they succeeded. And that is, I think it's less, it doesn't quite rise to a coup, even if it was an attempt to disrupt, to fundamentally disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, but I, I, I completely agree with the characterization that this was, it was beneath the dignity of America to have this kind of incident. Banana Republic, if you take that as a very negative connotation, I, I agree with that. Uh, but I wanted to get your perspective on car on how to characterize this and how to conceptualize what happened. Uh, I agree with what you said. Let me say something further about banana republic style dictatorship. We talked some about this in our original podcast after January 6th, that one shouldn't just think of dictators. If all that comes to mind is Hitler or Stalin, you're not really thinking about the whole phenomenon of dictatorship and banana republics have real differences to something like Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia, because they don't have a whole ideology often behind them. But you nevertheless have a dictator who in effect wields total power, but he's not wielding it totally in the way that he's trying to reform all of society in the way that Nazi Germany say he's doing but it's still a dictatorship. And one thing when you see countries descend into becoming banana republics is the, the some, and thinking of it as a coup, so to go back to the, the aspect of the question about a coup, is it's a military coup. The military takes over. One of the crucial aspects of the American system of government is that the military is in civilian control. So this is part of why it's important. And I've been stressing this, that the 
president is the commander in chief and it's important that he's the head of the military and not some unelected general but also someone whose whole profession is just in the military it's important that it's under civilian control in terms of thinking of how we could get to the stage of a real banana republic i think one possibility is that the military takes over and it sometimes that happens for understandable reasons that they think you've got a crazy person who's in charge here who's detached from reality and we're going to take control it doesn't work because a, a military should not be the head of the government and so but it's sometimes understandable that the military feels we've got to take power and you can see that happening in the US and this is part of why i think it's that trump his character and conduct should disbar him from the presidency because and this was part of general milley when the, the little testimony that came is yeah we're dealing with someone who's detached from reality and if you imagine a real military situation where trump is just proceeding by arbitrary thing after arbitrary thing and the military like will have a perspective of do we just follow all these orders that are crazy or do we not and the not i could see not immediately but on the trajectory we're on 10 20 years the military saying no we have to dispose of the president and we have to take control like we can't have a crazy person who's detached from reality that so in terms of thinking about the mechanics of how dictatorship works in a lot of these banana republics it's the it's the generals and so on who are the head of it and that is not a good situation and it's not the american form of government and this is why you have to take really seriously this is what our commander in chief was doing and that this can't be in america that if this is if it's really what is being alleged happened on january 6 it's there's no way a command that's uh it's so put it in terms of the bar it's so below the bar of what's acceptable for a commander in chief that it it that really should impact what people think of trump well I, we're over time and thanks to all of you who submitted questions we try to get some of those in thanks to all of you who submitted super chat donations we appreciate your support and thanks for being with us today I want to close with some suggestions for other resources you might find interesting and useful. Uh, so we mentioned a few times the podcast that Ankar and I did in January 2021, about a week or so after the storming of the Capitol. It's a two and a half hour analysis of what was known at the time. Highly recommend it. There's a short link there for you. We'll put it in the show notes as well. And Ankar mentioned uh, articles that he's written about uh, Donald Trump. One of them was written uh, shortly after Donald Trump won the election in 2016, and that one is called One Small Step for Dictatorship. It's about the kind of campaign that Trump uh, ran and the, and the cultural implications of that. Highly recommend that. We'll put a link in the show notes and there's a short link on the screen. And then the other one, which was actually solicited from us, but never used, a major newspaper came to us and asked, well, what would Ayn Rand say about Donald Trump? And we don't speak for Ayn Rand, and that's one of the things you say in the article, but what would she say based on the kind of principles she articulates and our understanding of her philosophy? 
that's what the, the focus of that piece is. And she, the argument you make is that she would have really despised uh, President Trump for intellectual and philosophical reasons. So I highly recommend both, both of those. They'll be uh, easily found on our journal, New Ideal as well. And finally, uh, we'll be back here with another podcast next week. Uh, that one will be on Ayn Rand's view of moral judgment. I think there's a lot of interesting things to bring out there, how distinctive her view is. So that will be led by my colleague, Ben Baer on June 22nd, that's the plan. Hope you'll join us for that. And to close, we always welcome your feedback and your uh, support of the, the podcast. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel. If that's where you're listening, make sure to click the bell to get notifications, like or the thumbs up or whichever mechanism there is and leave a comment. We always read the comments. And if you're watching on another platform, you have the same kind of tools. We welcome that, it helps us reach more people by doing that. And finally, we uh, always invite your comments. You can send us suggestions, questions, uh, ideas for topics to discuss. We read everything that comes in through this channel, newideal at aynrand.org through email. We try to respond to as many of them as we can. And we often, they're, they're often the seeds of either articles or podcasts. So we welcome your feedback on what we do here in the podcast. That's all for today. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Ankar. Thanks a lot. Thanks everyone for joining. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.